Good morning. Our scripture reading today is in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew, chapter 20, 1 through 16. Hear God's word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to have labor, to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do need illumination. We need your help today to understand this passage of your word, and not only understand it, but apply it to live differently because of what we read here. And so come Holy Spirit and fill this room with your light and your truth. Help us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you again. I bring you greetings from University Presbyterian Church, your sister congregation in Orlando, another part of our denomination. And it's always good to see you in this hot summer. And as Clayton or Glenn said, tomorrow is August. I can't believe it. Just can't believe that. But we're here today, obviously, to look at this passage of Scripture and to think about what it says. I uh, read about an organization in Los Angeles that operates an apology sound-off line. It's a phone number. A phone number that people can call if they feel the need to apologize for something that they did. 200 people a day call that number. They confess to having had an affair or stealing from their employer. Some people even to confess to things like rape and child abuse. 
a few people have confessed to murder. And that's something. Uh, an alcoholic called that line and said, I'd like to apologize to all the people I hurt in my 18 years as an addict. One young woman sobbing over the phone because she had caused a car accident in which five people died. She called the apology sound off line and said, I just want to say I'm sorry. I wish I could bring them back. Everywhere you go, people are looking for grace. What is grace? Grace is being loved in spite of your failures and your sins. Grace is favor given freely to the undeserving. And grace is at the very heart of our God. This passage this morning is about grace. And we're going to look at grace from three different perspectives. I want to talk first about our resistance to grace. And then talk about God's affection for grace. And then I thought I would leave some practical application for this church and talk about your obligation as a community of grace. All right, so that's our plan. Let's dive in and talk first about our resistance to grace. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that you and I resist the idea of grace? As strange as that might seem, we do. You know, the full impact of this passage probably you would miss if you just dived right into Matthew 20 without thinking about what has just preceded this chapter. And so let's talk a little bit about what just happened prior to Matthew 20. Up in chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, that's that famous passage where children are brought to Jesus. And you remember what the disciples did when children came to Jesus? Here were young mothers bringing their little babies and toddlers that Jesus might bless them. And what did the disciples do? Shooed them away. Get away, get away. Jesus is too busy. Why did they do that? Why did they shoo children away? Well, society reckons many times that children are an interruption. Children bring problems, right? Children need a lot of forgiveness, And they didn't think Jesus had time for that, that day. And then in the next few verses, chapter 19, 16 through 22, you have another well-known story. It's the story about the rich young ruler. And if you remember verse 16, what the rich young ruler said to Jesus, he said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to get eternal life? He thought that he could earn salvation by his own works, instead of through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then thirdly, in verse 27, here comes Simon Peter. You know, Peter was always reacting to things that he saw Jesus do or heard Jesus say. And Peter says in verse 27, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, what will there be for us? Now, what do all three of those things have in common? They're all interactions about merit versus grace. All three. The disciples, uh, Jesus, these are just children. They can't contribute anything to you. Surely you don't have time for them. 
the rich young ruler, what must I do to get eternal life, get into heaven? Peter, here's what we've done. Uh, Jesus, don't we deserve something in return? See, all three conversations about merit versus grace. And that's why Jesus tells this story in Matthew 20. In my Bible, the heading of this story is laborers in the vineyard, but I prefer to call it the parable of the generous landowner. It's really a story about the landowner, not so much the laborers. But you followed the story, right, when I was reading it? Uh, this, I'll tell you in my own words. This landowner, or this master of the house as he's called, needs some work done in his vineyard. So he goes to the town square five different times during the day, and he hires groups of men to come work in his vineyard. Some of them start right away when the whistle blows at 6 a.m. Others start at 9 a.m. Others 12 noon. Others at 3 o'clock. And then finally a group at 5 o'clock, an hour before quitting time. So we're looking at a 12-hour work day. And when 6 p.m. rolls around, the landowner pays all of his workers the same thing. One denarius, which back in that day was a typical wage for a day's work. Now, doesn't your heart go out to those guys who started work at daybreak? I mean, this is a story filled with human uh, understanding. You and I, our hearts go out to those guys that started at Six o'clock. Pretend for a moment that you're one of them. Uh, You've sweated out in the hot Judean sun for a full 12 hours. You were there, out there in the vineyard, pulling weeds or pruning vines or harvesting grapes or whatever it was you had to do all day long for 12 straight hours. And you saw these guys coming on board throughout the day. 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, even as late as 5 o'clock. And so you've got it figured out. You're not dumb. The landowner, you figure in your mind, is going to pay everybody according to the time that they put in. That's only the right thing to do. A full denarius for you and your fellow workers who came in at 6 o'clock in the morning, three quarters of a denarius for the next group, half of a denarius for the group that started at noon, a fourth of a a denarius that those started at 3 o'clock, and then finally, for that last group of men who just did one little pitiful hour of work, they get one-twelfth of a denarius. That's what you're thinking as you line up, you know, for payday. That's what any reasonable person would expect, a full day's wage for a full day's work. So at the end of the day, you're all lined up, ready to be paid, and the landowner starts with that five o'clock group. And he hands them each a denarius. Whoa, you whispered to the next guy in line. We just got a raise. Do the math, you say to your fellow worker. If those guys got a denarius for working one hour, we're going to get 12 denarii because we work 12 hours. But then (laughs) the landowner works his way down the line. He gives a denarius to the guys that started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Then he goes to the guys that started working at, at 12, one denarius. And then he comes to the guys that started at 9 a.m., one denarius. And then finally he comes to you and your group, 6 a.m. guys, and he gives you one lousy, stinking, measly, pitiful denarius. Verse 11 says that when that original group of workers received their pay, they grumbled at the master of the house. Well, duh, wouldn't you? I would. <laughs> That's not fair. What are you doing? What are you thinking, Mr. Boss Man? In verse 12, they say to the master, These people, these last, worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That's not fair, mister. Let's, uh, let's change up the story a little bit. You might be having a trouble uh, identifying with workers in the vineyard. Pretend you're back in college. Some of you don't have to pretend. A few of you here are in college. But let's pretend that you're a college student and you're taking organic chemistry, one of the most delightful topics there is to study. And it's the end of the, sem- uh, it's the, end of the semester. You've worked hard all semester. You've kept up with your assignments. You've handed in all the papers you were supposed to hand in. And you know that you aced the final exam. But in the same organic chemistry class that you're in is this group of fraternity guys that came to college just to party. And that's exactly what they've done. They've hardly cracked the textbook all semester. They didn't even show up for class a lot of days, and you could tell they didn't have a clue when it came to the final exam. Well, the professor has just posted all the grades like they often do outside his office. So you go over there to his office, you look at the list of students, and you scan down to find your name, and behold, you got an A. And you're feeling fantastic until you start realizing that everybody in the class got an A, including those guys that hardly did anything, those slackers. Wouldn't you grumble at that professor? Wouldn't you go to a website called ratemyprofessors.com and give that guy a zero? Because that's not how things are supposed to work. There's no such thing as a free lunch. We've all been trained to believe that. Guys that work just an hour shouldn't be paid the same thing that somebody that works all his life should be paid. Slackers shouldn't get A's. But see, that's Jesus' point. That's the whole point of this story. In his economy, you do get a free lunch. In his economy, you get what you don't pay for. Grace, that's what grace is. Grace is free and undeserved. The love of God is not something you work to get. It's something you simply, what? Receive. Free of charge. But that's so counterintuitive. That is so against the way you and I are hardwired. We're hardwired to think in terms of merit. That's our default. My daughter, my younger daughter, I have four kids, two girls, two boys. My younger daughter just had her fourth baby this past Monday. 
So we were there in Jacksonville visiting with her and the rest of her family, and everything is just great. Well, when she was expecting that baby, she, uh, on her Facebook account, some of you, I'm sure, have a Facebook account, she went to her Facebook account while she was pregnant, and she just wrote a comment that I thought was precious, and I wrote it down because I want to save it. Here's what she said on her Facebook wall when she was expecting. She said, I am brought to tears today. I have the most precious little children and another life in my belly, kicking up a storm and reminding me all is okay. My husband works hard so we can provide a wonderful home for these little ones. God is so, so, so good. Three times. So, so, so good. I cannot deserve, I cannot deserve all that he has blessed me with. And you know how friends can go on someone's page and write comments? When that friend of hers saw her words, I cannot deserve all these blessings, she said, yes, you can. And I thought, that's mighty strange. But that's exactly the human default. Yes, we can deserve. Look at what we've done. We get what we pay for. We're like Private Ryan. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Saving Private Ryan. But it's about a man who was rescued during World War II. And when James Ryan, who in this movie is now an old man in this scene at the end of the movie, when he goes to the uh, Normandy American Cemetery and kneels down at the grave marker of the man who saved his life, He says to his wife, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And I thought that scene is so telling about the human predicament. Because what he's saying is, he's saying, I can't just receive my rescue as a free gift. I have to do something to earn it, to deserve it. This is what I often call the debtor's ethic. The debtor's ethic. It follows us around everywhere we go. From the day we're born to the day we die, we're brainwashed with this formula, if you do this, you deserve that. If you work hard, you'll be successful. If you make the team, you'll be popular. If you're beautiful, you'll get asked out on a date. If you're rich, you'll be admired. If you have well-behaved, successful children, you'll be the envy of the neighborhood. It's all about merit, isn't it? Grace is alien to us. This this thinking of, of the new math of grace is even offensive to us because we're so convinced that we must get what we deserve. Now, I'm not knocking hard work or money or beauty or anything like that. The Bible calls us to work hard and strive for excellence. The problem starts when we try to import the debtor's ethic into our relationship with God. And we do that, don't we? We do that. Don't we sometimes think like Simon Peter, Lord, I've done this for you. I've done that for you. What will there be for me? I worked really hard today for you, God. This is going to be a 12 denarii day. 
I prayed for 30 minutes this morning, God. I shared my faith with my neighbor, God. Uh, Maybe earlier in this service, there was even the thought, I tithed this morning, Lord. Now I don't have to feel guilty about those mean things I said to my wife yesterday. See, it's if I do this, God, I'll get that. And when we don't get the good day or the answers to prayer or the happy feelings... We become like the workers in verse 11. We grumble against our master who has every right to give or withhold his blessings as he sees fit. So much then for our resistance to grace. I hope you see that we're just like the workers that started at 6 a.m. Grace is alien to us and even offensive. Well, let's talk about God's affection for grace. We, we might resist it, but God loves it. God loves grace. You know what? He, give, he loves to give grace to five o'clock people. That's what I'll call us. We are five o'clock people. In, other words, in fact, we're, we're 559 people. We're people who just received grace for nothing, nothing we've done, nothing whatsoever. God loves to give grace away. It's an essential part of his nature. Think about that. Think about the people that Jesus hung out with the most. Who were they? Fishermen who often stumbled in their faith. Tax collectors who were despised by the people. Women who had no voice at that time and were disrespected by society. The poor, the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, widows who were without means, lepers who were unclean, children who were looked down on by by adults, prostitutes whom the townspeople wanted to stone to death. Those were the people that Jesus loved to spend time with because grace was an essential part of His nature. He loved 559 people. Grace upon grace upon grace. In other words, God is the generous master of this story. He pays people for work they didn't do. You are one of those people hired at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It wasn't because of anything you had to offer God that He brought you into His family. God saw you in your sin and in your misery and had compassion on you. He loved you in spite of you. You know, I may be talking to someone this morning who thinks that you're beyond hope. I felt that way about myself at one time. You may think you're without hope, beyond the reach of God's love and grace. You've made mistakes in life. You've made terrible choices. You've brought pain and hurt into other people's lives. And you think that the rest of your life you need to just try your best to atone for all the things that you've done wrong. I'm here to tell you this morning that the gospel says otherwise. The gospel says that God operates by the new math of grace. Like it says in verse 16 of this text, the last are brought up to the front of the line. And those who push and shove and work to be first in line end up last. That's just Jesus' way of saying, I don't work like the world does. I love and I pour out my love and mercy and grace upon people who've come to the end of themselves. 
who think that they're failures, who think they're lost and without hope. That's who I died on the cross for. So please, I want you to know if you came today without hope, hoping that maybe there was a bit of good news this morning. There's a lot of good news in this passage of Scripture and then throughout the Bible because Jesus Christ died for sinners. He is a friend of sinners, a friend of people who have tried and failed on their own. Now listen, do good works matter? You may be wondering that. Yes, they do, of course. But your good works are a response to God's love. They do not cause God's love to come your way. God loves you not because of what you do for Him, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And that isn't just true at the beginning of your Christian life. It's true throughout your Christian life and forever. There's nothing you can do that would make, you God, make God love you more than He does already. And nothing you do could make God love you less. If you've embraced Jesus Christ by faith, His love for you is not based on your works and it never will be. It's all of grace, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace like we just sang, infinitely bestowed on all who believe. You know, we often sing, and most people in America know that hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, perhaps better than any other single passage of Scripture, this text in Matthew 20 shows just how amazing God's grace really is. You know, any person with half a brain would probably want to walk up to the master of the house, the the landowner here, and say to him, Brother, you're being unreasonable. Don't you know that you're just throwing money away? Why in the world, we might say, would you pay a guy a denarius for one crummy hour of work? It makes no sense. You keep on doing that. And you know what's going to happen? People are just going to come on board and show up at late. They'll show up at 5 o'clock and do very little. And they'll know that you're going to be so generous to them. Well, in a similar way, somebody might want to take Jesus aside. Might want to come up to Jesus and elbow Him and say something like, Jesus, you shouldn't tell followers stories like this. Because don't you realize, Jesus, that if you keep telling them about this kind of grace... Grace for 559 people? Grace for work not done? They're just going to take advantage of you, Jesus. If you tell them you give your love to people who do absolutely nothing to deserve it, they'll just stop trying to be good Christians. Well, Jesus must not have been too worried about that because He told a lot of stories about grace. He knew, and so do many of you, I trust, how grace works. The more you understand... God's free, unreasonable, outrageous grace, His undeserved favor. The more that begins to sink into your heart, the more you will, what? Want to know Him, follow Him, serve Him, obey Him. The more you will want to give and love others and show forth the kind of life that God has died to give you. And you'll do it with a spirit of joy rather than fear. See, perfect love, it says in 1 John chapter 4, casts out fear. Grace casts out fear and causes true, compassionate, heartfelt love for the Savior. 
The power of grace is much, much greater than the power of the debtor's ethic. Well, so we've seen so far our resistance, how we are offended by God's grace and how God loves to give grace. Let me, uh, if you don't mind, say a few words as we close about your obligation. You know, I come to you from another church. This is a church. Your obligation as a community of grace. Can I say a few things about that? Because the more I studied this story, the more I saw its implications for us as believers. At the end of verse 15, almost at the very end of this passage, the landowner, the landowner says to the, uh, the original group of workers, the ones that started at daybreak, he said, do you begrudge my generosity? Let those words sink in a little bit. Do you begrudge my generosity? In other words, the landowner is saying to those six o'clock people, are you annoyed because I'm so generous? Do you resent that I'm gracious to people that you consider to be slackers? Are you stingy with my grace or are you generous with my grace? See, that has enormous implications for the church. Because Jesus is calling us, your church, my church, all Christians, to be just as unreasonable with our grace as He has been with us. What might that look like here at Christ the King Presbyterian Church? I'll throw out six things that I think unreasonable, outrageous grace might look like here at Christ the King. First of all, I would call you to give each other the benefit of the doubt. You know what I mean by that? This means that you cut each other some slack. When someone does something that you don't like, something that you don't understand, this kind of grace means that you say to yourself, you know, there's probably a reason why this person did that. And I might not understand the story. I may not know the reason. But I'm going to give him or her the benefit of the doubt. See, we must be quick to excuse rather than quick to accuse. So, give each other the benefit of the doubt. Number two, forgive and keep on forgiving. Forgive and keep on forgiving. You know, even though we all believe in Jesus and love, try to love Jesus and love one another, we're going we're to sin against each other. We're going to disappoint each other. It's happened and it will continue to do that. But rather than what we do sometimes is when we're disappointed by someone, we often walk away from the relationship, cut the person off, maybe avoid the person in the future, walk the other way. Instead of that, this passage calls us to do what Jesus said to do. Forgive not seven times, but how many? Seventy-seven times. In other words, you just keep on forgiving. That's what unreasonable grace looks like. Number three, celebrate effort, not just results. Celebrate effort, not just results. Now, this is what we know to do with children, right? Our little grandchild is coloring a page in his or her coloring book. And the colors are just all over the place. But what do we say? What a beautiful picture. (laughs) What are we doing? We're celebrating effort, not results. 
in a community of grace like a church is supposed to be, failure should be viewed as a step forward in the process of growth. So if the church tries something and it just bombs, celebrate the effort. If someone you know tries to do something to love another person and just totally falls flat on her face, celebrate effort. Thank that person. Way to go. Good job. Number four, focus on each other's strengths rather than weaknesses. And isn't it so much our tendency to focus in on what somebody does wrong or or the things that they do that are little annoyances or little idiosyncrasies. And we want to focus in on those things rather than I'll focus on what that person does to glorify God in his or her life. Number five, welcome people who are different from you. This is a tough one. Welcome people into this church who are different from you. This community, I've got to believe. Now, I don't live in Vero or Sebastian or anywhere around here. I live in Orlando. But I've got to believe that this community is filled with five o'clock people. People who need to be loved. People who need to be welcomed. People who are different from you. Dress different, look different, act different. Those we might call five o'clock people. How does God treat those people? With grace. Do the same. And finally, number six. I'm sure from time to time there's going to be conflict in the church. You probably can imagine that. I'm sure it's never happened, but maybe it will. When and if conflict happens, work through those conflicts face to face instead of avoiding them. When you have an issue with somebody... Go to that person. Don't go to someone else, but go to that person and work through the conflict. Talk directly to that person through the conflict as best you can, face to face. Now, these things apply not only here at church, but in your family, in your small group, in your Bible study, and in all of your relationships with people. Basically, bottom line, I'll close with this. Don't be annoyed at the grace of God. Don't begrudge His generosity. Instead, receive it, celebrate it, and spread it around. Because everywhere you go, people are looking for grace. And so are you. Let's pray. Lord, we want to say we're 5 o'clock people. In fact, we're 559 people. We didn't deserve your love or salvation And yet you freely bestowed it upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our sins, our failures and our mistakes to the cross. Thank you that now your heart is one of grace and mercy toward us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to resemble you in our relationships with each other and with this community We pray that you will so change and transform our hearts by your grace that we might be people who look around us and see people in need of grace and we give it to them. Will you do that? Holy Spirit, make us more like like the Savior in the way that we treat one another and people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.